Hello and welcome back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast, brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services. My in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year. Learn more at bcpsfepdental.com. It was 40 years ago, it's hard to believe that now, 40 years ago, here in late October of 2023, that Atlantic Command launched what at the time was the largest U.S. military operation since the Vietnam War, the invasion of the Caribbean island nation of Grenada, where 800-some U.S. medical students were under the threat of a bloody coup that had fallen upon the revolutionary government there. This was hailed as a great success at the time, a splendid little war, if you will, emphasis on the splendid. Uh, Yet behind the scenes of this um, seemingly successful little venture, we did get everybody out and all was well and um, Granada was restored to a sense of normalcy. Underneath the surface of it, things were not so cut and dried. And those who were involved in the military inside of things realized that they had dodged a major bullet here. So here to look at this on the 40th anniversary of Operation Urgent Fury, as it was known, is um, author Ed Offley, whom we're glad to welcome back with their cover story in the current issue about just this very thing. Ed, how have you been? Nice to see you again. Just fine, Eric. Thanks. Oh, good. So this is a really um, interesting piece. I love these things where um, they happened in some of our lifetimes, yet now they have the patina of history on them, which makes them more interesting. And plus, we know a lot more about this now than the public or the press could know at the time. And it's quite revealing uh, what uh, potential mess this whole operation was. There's all the stove piping between the service branches and whatnot. And you do a wonderful job in this article of uh, laying all that out. And, of course, some good comes from the confusion of that um, behind the scenes. So why don't you set the stage for us? Uh, What was going on in Granada that uh, merited such a U.S. attention at this point? Well, the Reagan administration had been in office for just a year and a half, two years, when they started paying attention to this former French then British colony down almost at the South American coast. It was known for agricultural exports, nutmeg, things like that. But in 1979, a group of uh, leftist activists had fomented a bloodless coup against a very corrupt uh, governor uh, who had taken the island to independence, but he was apparently not firing on all cylinders. So the new new jewel movement under uh, Maurice Bishop all indigenous uh, local Grenadians um, seized power, but immediately immediately pivoted towards uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba and the Soviet Union in terms of uh, economic and military aid. Uh, and it became something of a little fester down in the Caribbean as far as the Reagan administration was concerned. They have particular concern was a huge runway that was under construction there southern tip of Point Salines. And the reason was um, they were arguing, uh, Grenadians, that it was for tourism, but there weren't any hotels or, or tourist amenities on the island at the time. And so the uh, Pentagon and the White House put two and two together and thought this is going to be a major 
air bridge for the Soviets and the Cubans to get in and out of the rest of the Caribbean basin. Well, anyway, despite all the brotherly socialist uh, love and uh, aid, uh, Grenada was becoming a failed state by mid-1983. Um, nothing was working. The, the revolutionaries, quite honestly, were not very competent. Uh, all of the businesses were struggling, if not totally uh, done under by national, being nationalized. Uh, and things came to a head in, in early October when uh, uh, even more hardline faction within this revolutionary government kicked out Maurice Bishop, who was very popular on the island, um, put him under house arrest. When the citizens of the island, 90,000 plus uh, population, found out about this, they, they took to the streets, very loud, chaotic, peaceful demonstrations, and a group of them swarmed uh, Bishop's house and, and rescued him from this house arrest. Well, about four hours later, the cord, uh, that's the hard faction in the government, uh, turned machine guns on the crowd and killed several dozen. Uh, he seized uh, Bishop and his supporters again and executed them without a trial. And that then threw Grenada into just something like we see in Gaza today, just total chaos, total lawlessness, fear and loathing. And that's when the Reagan administration decided for a full military intervention, both to rescue the 600 medical students who were there, mostly Americans, but also to get rid of this, this horrible, failed, uh, corrupt regime and, and, and kick Castro out of any influence in the island. Uh, that was the good news. It was a pretty straightforward set of strategic goals. The bad news is they only had 72 hours to do it. And the one thing I've learned over the years I've covered the military is that the Department of Defense is not very good at improv. Um, and, and Grenada was a textbook case of this. It turns out that the huge industrial intelligence apparatus that we have ringing the world uh, did not have a single human being on Grenada. Uh, they had a part-time agent on a sailboat somewhere who couldn't really access any meaningful uh, information. So they essentially had to plan to go in blind. Well, the other thing that made this almost a preordained disaster was uh, General John Vesey, the Joint Chiefs Chairman, uh, immediately put this operational planning under a incredible compartmented, top secret, don't tell anybody basis, uh, with the end result that the logistics people the public affairs people, even a lot of the operations people were frozen out. And, and we were left with, the, the, to me, the most amazing, uh, let's call it almost disaster. Uh, two, two days before the plan D-Day on uh, Wednesday, October 25th, there were three separate operational military commands that were independently planning to seize the Point Salines Airport without knowing that the other two were planning to seize the Point Salines Airport. And nobody knew that the other two were involved. And so for a, for a good 24 hours, we had the um, Army Rangers and the Military Airlift Command. That's one. We had the uh, 22nd Marine Amphibious Unit and its airlift uh, on the uh, Guam's uh, Amphibious Group. That's two. And then we had um, the Joint Special Operations Command with the SEALs 
and Delta Force and the 160th Aviation Night Stalkers from Fort Campbell, all planning to be over top Selene's airport at dawn on October 25th. It would have been the largest midair collision in the history of flight. But it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Talk about stovepiping. That's the that's the epitome example I've ever heard of that. Well, and, Mark, um, Twain, Mark Twain said that God looks after children drunks in the United States of America. So <laughs> I guess that's pretty prescient in this instance. <laughs> Well, this actually worked out okay, despite all this. Now, there's some tragedy to this, though. As you point out, um, a number of the, there's not a lot of U.S. deaths and casualties that accrue from this um, brief operation, but a large, a significant number of them come from intelligence failures. They were avoidable. And um, Well, they were, I don't know if they were avoidable, given the structure and the timing, what happened. This was almost an inevitability. Um, because... There was no effective uh, tactical intelligence of what the Grenadians had and where they were located and what they may have capabilities of doing. Uh, the SEALs in particular, in a number of missions, were dropped on their target zones carrying, you know, hand, you know, light machine guns and, and pistols and maybe a grenade launcher or two and immediately found themselves being fired at by this one unit of the Grenadian um, Revolutionary Army that had these heavy Soviet BTR armored personnel carriers that had these really heavy, uh, got the caliber machine gun turrets. And and so they were totally outgunned. At one, at one instance, they were, um, a team was just designated to seize the radio transmitter up on the northwest coast of the island so that you know, the, the bad guys couldn't transmit any misinformation or, or pleas. So they, they, you know, hail a drop, they got in, they took over the thing. Uh, the Grenadians showed up with a couple of these um, BTRs and started shredding the building. And the, the SEALs had to crawl out the back door and hide in the woods and then climb down the cliff and swim back to a Navy ship. It was not, it was not a very uh, pointy heart moment for them. Um, this was mainly because a combination of poor intelligence and essentially the lack of time to plan uh, led in, in five or six instances to loss of life that otherwise would have probably been avoided. Yeah. It's kind of amazing if you think about it, isn't it, that the revolutionary government had been in place at least for a while. And you'd think that would have been the trigger point that the CIA would send somebody down there have somebody on site. There's plenty of cover. You got medical students from the U.S. there. I mean, you could easily have implanted a CIA officer there at that I would, point. I would think so. And for, <coughs> excuse me. At one point, one of the other just telling glitch, um, when they devised this operation, the main mission was to rescue the students. Um, not only did they screw that up, that was the last thing they accomplished in this three-day war. When they got to actually take over the airport, the Rangers marched very quickly just down the road about three miles to this, what they thought was the student campus. They had a joyous reception with the students and then learned that only half of them were, were at this campus. There's a whole other mm -hmm. campus on the other side of the island with another three or 400 students that nobody knew about. And what makes this particularly galling, and this is in one of the histories I, I, I found, there was a National Security Agency 
intelligence operative worked in DC, I guess, or Fort Meade. She had a brother who was a medical student at Grenada. And she knew about the Grand Dance, the second campus. She got a whisper they were planning this, this intervention. She sent this urgent message up her chain of command saying, please tell them there's a second campus at Grand Dance. And it never got there. It ended up in somebody's in-tray and he was out on vacation. And, and it was like the telegram from uh, D.C. that got to Pearl Harbor a little bit late. Uh, yeah. And so landed there. They found themselves in the middle of a two-way firefight with 200 medical students, but on the other side of the enemy. And that caused them, they did recover and, and carry out a rescue quite well, but this should not have happened in the first place. The public is not seeing any of this. It's important to point this out to our viewers. Um, this was very much a feel-good story of 1983. Uh, mere days earlier, the uh, Marine barracks bombing in Beirut had occurred, and um, the American public needed something uh, uplifting, and this provided that. But it's funny, if you look underneath the surface of it all, what a um, potential disastrous mess this was. And I think that speaks well to those who had to... Uh, those on the ground who went in, those Americans who went in and managed to uh, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear with this situation. Uh, we did get all the students out, and um, one of them kisses the tarmac when they returned to the States, and that's the photo op that uh, defines the whole story for the country at that point. Well, there were no photos from the battlefield, were there? I, I no. was working in Norfolk. Uh, my job was as a military uh, columnist for the Ledger Star newspaper. I knew Wesley McDonald had met him. I, I had covered a lot of the units uh, that ended up going in there. And that was, to me, the most frustrating 72 hours of my 40-year career because they ostensibly wanted to, you know, keep the press from screwing up the operation. And what they really did was keep the press from finding out that they didn't have to screw up the operation because it was already screwed. Um, it took another 20 years, including the invasion of Panama, Desert Storm, uh, and some other operations before the, the Pentagon and the press finally, in 2003, 20 years ago, finally really put together a workable program that kept uh, things like this from happening again. The embedded program that that went into Iraqi freedom. Uh, it was a bad weekend for everybody, but it was very frustrating for anyone whose job it was to make sense of the U.S. military. Um, mm -hmm. I remember it with all sorts of bad flashbacks. But yeah, as you say, it's right. They, uh, they, they did well despite the fact that they were working in a system that had some very serious flaws to it. In particular, the Army and the Navy could not talk to each other their instruments were hardwired in such a way that there was no common frequency. They never practiced the whole, the whole Navy Marine Corps uh, department, by the way, their, their answer to this is we don't need joint operations. See how bad they are. Just let the Navy Marine Corps team do it by themselves. Well, okay. Yeah. But that was a little of an old argument in 1983 and it obviously doesn't apply now. But it caused some great creativity. I, I thoroughly was mystified until you put me on assignment to write this article about Grenada. I had heard about this, this crazy story about the telephone booth 
and the soldier who called home from Grenada for air support. We heard about it within a couple of weeks of the operation uh, back up uh, in Norfolk. And over the years, it's been, you know, everybody knows that happened. But nobody ever stepped forward. Nobody ever explained it. Nobody ever denied it. And it well, wasn't. Tell you know, the story to our viewers so you know what we're talking about. Tell the story. It's a funny, it's an, it's an interesting story. It, it's one of the great legends of the Cold War. The story is this unit got pinned down by Cuban gunfire. Their radio couldn't reach the ship's uh, communications. They could see the ships off, off, just off coast, off, off the shore. They couldn't talk to them. And in desperation, this soldier belly crawls to this red Grenadian phone booth, gets a dial tone, gets his credit card out, makes a collect phone call, as the story went. Fort Bragg, now Fort Liberty, um, gets to the ops center, somehow gets transferred to the Pentagon. From there, he gets transferred to Norfolk. From there, he gets transferred to the USS Independence off Grenada and gets his air support. It's a wonderful story. It happened very differently. In fact, one of the reasons the story both lingered and eluded resolution for 40 years was that it was not an army soldier in a phone booth. It was a member of Navy SEAL Team 6. Now, we've had quite a bit of exposure about these incredible commandos over the decades. But in 1983, not only were they top secret, but the name SEAL Team 6 was top secret. It was like a little trademark, top secret. And it was a SEAL Team 6 platoon that was ordered in one of these many um, special operations mission to, to, to land at the governor's mansion and rescue the uh, British uh, constitutional head of Grenada, the governor general, Sir Paul Schoon. He was not a member of the revolutionary cabal that was caused all this mess. He was sort of the, you know, the legitimate head, head, representative of the queen, as it were. And he was just holed up in his house and they were gonna rescue him and get him out of there and take him to uh, Admiral Metcalf on the USS Guam. So it, like everything else, it, you know, the plan fell apart instantly. The, they faster up from these helicopters. But while this was going on, a heavy uh, anti-aircraft machine gun stitched into one of the helicopters, injuring the pilot. On board still were the commander of the SEAL, uh, SEAL detachment, Navy captain, and his radio man with the satellite radio who could talk to everybody. The helicopter goes staggering back, crash lands on the Guam. These guys can't get back you know, to, to where the governor general is. So they end up later going down to Point Salines and linking up with, with the other troops. So meanwhile, these SEALs on the ground, all they have these little handheld Motorola radios with, you know, double A batteries that can talk to each other, but nobody else. And the PRA set, realizes they're there and they start advancing with heavier, you know, BTR uh, armored personnel carriers and machine guns. And these guys are trapped as they spend the night with the governor general and his family underneath the dining room table as the bullets go in one window and out the other. Finally, this lieutenant uh, has a SEAL lieutenant has this inspiration. He sees a phone on the governor general's desk, gets a dial tone, makes a collect call, not to Fort Bragg, but to the first special operations wing, the Air Force Commando Unit down here at Hurlburt Field uh, at Eglin Air Force Base. 
and he gets to them and says, I need air support. And they were able to patch him through to a couple of AC-130 uh, gunships that were orbiting overhead. And he was able to talk them over and get them to drive the Grenadians away before they, you know, invaded and killed everybody. So mm, the next morning, amazing. the Marine Corps made a, a brilliant rescue of these people. The, they came ashore and, and got into St. George's, got them out. And so the governor general got to the ship. Uh, the SEALs redeployed a day or two later. Um, and the story remained, you know, secret, top secret. Right. Until now. Right. We, uh, um, you mentioned that we actually had a piece in the, the magazine a couple of years ago about the, the SEAL mission specifically, not the overall operation. And yeah, it was completely under wraps in those days. No one knew about it then. You mentioned Vice Admiral Joseph Metcalf. Let's talk about him for a minute. He was put in overall command. Um, yet it had to have been maddening for him because he had an answer to a lot of different people the way it was set up, did he not? Well, not only that, uh, you had uh, Admiral um, McDonald in Norfolk uh, and his three-star Admiral Metcalf on the scene for essentially what became a ground war. And I don't know what they teach at the Naval Academy, but I bet it has a lot to do with ships in the ocean rather than uh, lines of fire and artillery and close air support. So they knew from the start, you know, they needed some help. But what they did was there was this uh, anonymous uh, two-star Army general down at, uh, near Savannah, Georgia, commanding the 24th Infantry Division, who we would later get to know quite well, uh, Norm Schwarzkopf. And he, he got a phone call. And, you know, the, remember the whole top secret, don't talk to anybody. Uh, his, his boss called him and said, I can't tell you why, but I need you in Norfolk in, uh, tomorrow morning. So he said, okay. So he packed a bag, got to Norfolk, and that's when he learned he was going to be, get this, an advisor to the Navy. Uh, no planning staff, no com no communications to Army units or support, just uh, him and his, uh, his wallet and his hip pocket uh, giving advice on what to do with, uh, I guess, about 8,000 by now soldiers on the ground and Marines. And what to do against the Cubans and the and the, and the Grenadians, uh, but he did do one thing, um, and it, it was unfortunately uh, a major ugly episode of, of what we would call inter-service uh, rivalry and suspicion. Um, when they found out two hours after the Rangers arrived on on the island, when they got to the campus and found out half the students were at a completely different place. And there were no Americans anywhere near them. And there was this real fear. I mean, this is two and a half years after the Iran hostage crisis. That, that was the fear that the White House had was another major hostage crisis. Well, anyway, anyway, um, they had these elite army rangers on the ground at the airport. And and somebody said, well, we should make a heliborne assault with helicopters. And General Trowbridge, the head of the army there, said, well, it'd be great if we had any helicopters on the ground, but we don't. Well, meanwhile, Schwarzkopf is sitting offshore on the on the USS Guam, and he sees this, you know, 16 or 20, I don't know, uh, Marine helicopters just sitting there. All the Marine combat people are up north, but they're not on the ship. And he gets this brilliant idea. Why don't we have the Marine helicopters fly a mile and a half over to Point Salines Airport, pick up the Rangers, and go rescue 
the students. He, he, he tells us to Admiral Metcalf, who says, that's an excellent idea. Do it right now. So he, he, he summons the Marine in charge of the um, helicopter units and said, here's what we're going to do. He explains it, and the Marine says, I'm not going to do that. And he goes, why not? He says, we, we don't carry Army soldiers on Marine helos. He said, well, what are you going to do? And the colonel said, well, well, we'll get the Marines out here, and we'll send them in. They said, well, how long will that take? He said, oh, we could probably get them back here by late tomorrow. You know, at this point, Schwarzkopf, who was like six, seven, I think, glowered and reared up and said, if you don't do what Admiral Metcalf and I want, you're invited to a court-martial. And at that point, some captain nudged the colonel and said, maybe you better do what he wants. And what they did was the helicopters flew to Salines, picked up the Rangers, a brilliant Everyone was rescued, not a single injury. Yeah, it took see? Hammering on the forehead of people to get it done. Yes, it did. But the takeaway from that is the silver lining, the cloud of all this is there was inter service cooperation and it came in the form of Admiral Metcalf and General Schwartzkopf. Those two guys, they right. epitomized the inter service cooperation that made that happen. And a cock 45 aimed at this Marine Colonel. Okay, don't forget <laughs> that. But no. And I have to give credit, uh, just, I guess, in 1994, when the, there was that mini Haitian crisis, I don't know if you remember, um, Colin Powell and some other people went down and defused it. But at that point, the the Navy took one of its aircraft carriers, took the air wing off, loaded it with Army Special Operations helos and the troops, and they were going to go down and carry out the op as a unified team. So I say that to just say things were screwy back then but lessons were indeed learned and I'm, I'm very mindful of that yeah well see that's that's the other thing to remember about this we can sort of look back in wonderment at how um I'm, i can't use the word i want to use but i think you know what i mean how um tangled an operation this was unnecessarily so and realize well we don't do that this way now there's a lot more inter-service uh streamlined and this that and the other but a lot of that came from this didn't it this the lessons learned from this informed the way we do things now we should probably point that out too because that's probably the most significant takeaway from it all well both that, well grenada was uh, was a tipping point i mean there had been the, the there reasons including the planning and activation of the marine deployment to beirut there are some flaws in the system let that happen uh, the Iranian rescue raid in 1980 was was similarly flawed because the components of that mission never had a chance to train together effectively enough to, to carry it out. But yes, Grenada was the tipping point. And lessons were not only learned, but laws were passed that mandated this sort of training, cooperation, interactivity that, that fortunately is, is pretty well ingrained in the military system today. You, you could not mount a larger operation, a more large-scale offensive, the way things were being run in Operation Urgent Fury. It just would have been a um, colossal blunder of historic proportions. So we're lucky that we um, kind of yes. got it together. The Pentagon got its act together. Right. And, uh, it's my favorite Churchill quote, you can trust the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. 
Well, I mean, that's the empirical process, Winston. Yes. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a um, there's a memorial or something uh, commemorating. They celebrate the day in Grenada. Well, I, don't, I don't know if they have like a formal, you know, sculpture or something, but it it is a national holiday. On the that's ground. what I'm thinking of. It's a national holiday in Grenada, so um, this they, wasn't. They were being, a, they were being pretty badly treated by by that regime. Mm -hmm. There was never an election. It was a coup. Mm -hmm. So they went from the bad guys to the worst guys, as mm -hmm. it so often happens. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing in that climate that we had all those medical students down there in the first place. But, um, you know, you go along in your day-to-day -day life, you don't think things are going to blow up like they actually did there in terms of the situation. But before the uh, we arrived there, um, people were cowering in their their homes. You know, uh, it was like there's a shoot to kill order on the streets, a curfew, and all this stuff. Right. Um, so we truly did liberate that island, and we truly did get our people off. And that's those are all the good things. But um, those who are in the uh, inside track of uh, making these things happen were surely sweating bullets at how um, near a disaster was averted in this case. And and I can't I cannot blame everything. You cannot blame everything on, you know, whatever flaws there were in the command and control structure. I mean, they were there, but you know, seventy two hours to get a, a war underway. Um, it takes a little time to get everything up to speed. In fact, right. one of the th one of the things that that I found, you know, the hair that hair of your teeth thing, was that they they were flying down there. The the Rangers were. In C-130s, and they did not know if their airplanes were going to be able. They were, they were supposed to land on the runway, discharge the, the uh, Rangers, and then take off again. And they they were in the air halfway there when they found out they couldn't land because there was uh, equipment and materials blocking the runway. So they had to get their parachutes and rig them underway. Think of 120 Rangers in a C-130. It's like trying to change your foot closed with five other people in a phone booth and yet they did that um and fortunately um they weren't able to do a it wasn't like the 101st airborne at normandy they had to make repeated passes while five or six guys jumped because the drop zone was so narrow that if they'd all gone out at the same time you know they would have been in the ocean on land in the ocean again so th there were just some inherent constraints that were bad enough, this is what right. I'm saying. So right. the, the goals were met, it's just a lot of friction. Right, yeah, that's a, that's a very valid point to make. Even if um, the, the uh, armed forces had their act together and coordinated and ideally and all that, 72 hours is quite a uh, demanding time frame to make something happen right. in. Yeah. But th that's a perfect example is improvising um, in a hurry. And you know, you know, coming up with a solution, and um, in a sense, that's kind of inspiring, isn't it? the The fact that they're in that position is is um, troubling, but how they deal with it and come up with a solution on the fly like that never ceases to amaze me. That sort of thing. Well, I'm glad people are capable of that creativity because they, God knows, they need it. <laughs> right. Well, Ed, this has um, been very interesting, and this is a, a wonderful article. I highly recommend it to everybody. There's a, there's a sidebar piece. It's an online exclusive that goes with it. If you go to our 
website, uh, Naval History Magazine. Just Google us and you'll find it. And the sidebar tells the interesting story of that urban legend of the phone booth and um, all of that. So um, until the next time we have you in the magazine, and which I hope will be very soon, I want to thank you again for joining us. And um, check pleasure. out his article in the October issue, folks. Uh, great stuff. That's it for now. I'm Eric Mills, editor-in-chief of Naval History Magazine. And I want to thank you for joining us again. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>